0: And welcome to the European Startup Show where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Melanie Aronson, founder and CEO of Panion, a data-driven community platform. Melanie has a background in anthropology, documentary filmmaking, and design. And started Panyon with a vision to improve social well-being by connecting people through common interests and engaging them through relevant activities, workshops, events, etc. in their area. I'm really excited to welcome Melanie to the show and learn more about her unique journey and her views on community building. So please join me in welcoming Melanie. Hi,
1: thanks for having me.
0: So Melanie, the reason I was very to have you as a guest on my show is because you have such an interesting background. And I'm curious to hear from you on how you went from documentary filmmaking and a background in anthropology to starting your own company. Why did you do that?
1: I think I did it by accident, actually. So I actually moved to Sweden in 2014 at the height of the migration influx to Europe during the Syrian war. And I was on a Fulbright grant doing research on integration. As a documentary filmmaker, I was interested in making a film about refugee experiences in Sweden and understanding in general how people are integrating from two very different cultures. And then I realized that there was just this common narrative of people struggling to build their social circles again to really find people that that they could connect with. And I, I myself have had a similar experience. I've lived in multiple countries and I realized as I got older, it became more and more difficult because I knew myself better. I knew what I wanted in a, in a friend. I wish that I could like type in the word anthropology into Tinder and find all the people who like anthropology and then filter them by who doesn't want to date. And suddenly I was in Sweden and it was like biking everywhere in 10 minutes. I don't really have a background in building products, but I had worked for Apple for a few years, so I was quite familiar with the tech industry. And became quite technical myself. I have worked in design. And I would say I've gone to art school and I was a self-taught designer. So I started designing a prototype. And I started raising some friends and family money. And I think filmmaking is very similar to, to a startup. You're speaking to a certain audience, you have to find who that audience is and you have to tailor your message to them or your product to them. And as a film, it's a product in a sense. You have to build a team, you have to find people that are better than you at all sorts of things and, and make sure that you have a good team vibe, that people really can work well together and collaborate. There's a lot of project management that goes into creating a film, much like a startup. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you're a first time founder and you you don't have experience. You didn't go to business school and all of these things. But I think there's a lot of life experiences and work experiences that contribute to doing what we're doing. I'm not following the template. I'm figuring it out on my own, but I do have all of these skills under my belt from other industries. Right,
0: right. So when you started off as a first-time founder, how did you go about attracting people to work on your concept and idea with you? Did you go and raise money first and then find people and pay them? What was your strategy for getting really engaged people that believed in your vision to come work with you?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I used my skills in design. I had started a creative agency and was managing a bunch of freelancers to do all this kind of branding and web design work. So I created like a brand quite early on. I think because I built this presence, people would look us up and they were like, I want to get involved in it. I would say I needed to do a lot of learning about, how to build a team and how to build a team culture and how to be selective about who became part of our team, saying yes to to anyone who was excited Mm -hmm. about joining. And then I realized that's actually extra work for me because if they're not the right fit, I'm actually wasting my own time and I became better at selecting.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, it looks like you built a brand and you built a vision that people really mobilize towards and you got a few people helping you out and you started to build your product. Tell me a little bit about what Panion does and why is it called Panion? So
1: it's called Panion from the word companion. I was looking at all these companies like Skype, Spotify and I realized when you like create a new word A, it's easier to get the domain name and all of that and trademarks. But B, if you want to build a movement, which is what I wanted to do, I wanted to break the taboo of talking about loneliness. I wanted to build a space online that was more empathetic, that was more about meaningful connection. And I thought, okay, I need like a new word for this. I can't just be another word we already have Hmm. in our in our lexicon. So I sat with myself for a while and it just kind of came and I uh, trademarked it. Yeah, so we started off really as a a space for one-on-one connections and we were focused on in-person connections. We wanted to be a tool to help people find each other based on location, based on a series of of interest or values or experiences that they had. So you could actually tag these different interests to your profile and run searches and filters based on a number of things like a common interest, but also languages spoken or proximity to you, all of these things. And, I thought if we could sell this or even get people on for free, we would take large networks that existed and suddenly they would bring all their members to our platform and we wouldn't have to pay for advertising. So that was kind of my plan. But then when COVID hit, we realized that being a B2C company that was going to need to attain critical mass before we could actually monetize was going to be really hard in this uh, financial climate. So I thought, maybe it's best for us to focus on this sort of B2B side. And then community building just exploded. People were looking for more fulfilling types of virtual relationships than they had been before and feeling very exhausted and very, you know, disempowered by what we have now. All these likes and follows, that actually made them feel more lonely. So I think this, this kind of led to a rise virtual communities and community building. And I also think that community managers started to realize that this could become a viable business for them and that they could monetize on their communities. They could really give value to people through these niche communities, shared experience communities, shared value communities. So we started to shift and really grow out this B2B tool that we had built inside the product into a community management platform and We started to just run extensive research, talking to community manager after community manager and finding all of their pain points with Facebook groups, Slack groups, any sort of like Mighty Networks, any sort of tool that was building community already and and trying to build something better that was focused more on members getting to know each other's personalities, getting to connect in a new way, finding each other based on location so they could have eventually in-person connections as well. Like we wanted it to go deeper and people got really excited by this. We put up our demo online and within a month, month and a half, we, we were just getting so many per day and we were showing our product, and people were like loving what we were building. And obviously we have a long way to go, but uh, we realized we hit... The spot and it was in a sense a perfect storm for us that suddenly mental health, isolation, community was at the forefront of the of global conversation. I think this community building is so important. It's not just in the
0: time of pandemic but just in general. If you are building any product today, you need to build a movement around that idea to re- and get people really believing in what you do to differentiate yourself and your brand from, from others. So I, I really wanna hone in on this community building a little bit more with you. You said you interviewed lots of community managers and you've been building this tool. You have a background in anthropology and documentary. Can you distill for me top five things that are important in building highly engaged communities?
1: Sure. I think number one is listening to your members and really understanding what their needs are, what they want, but also looking at yourself as a community manager and deciding, is this the community that I want to be building? Because I've spoken to some community managers who feel this disconnect, where maybe their members want the community to be one thing, and they intended for it to be something else. I think really understanding where you want to be, what you want to be building, what type of community you want it to be. And also really clearly articulating that to your members is important. One of the things we've been working on that I think makes us unique is that we're really digging deep into the analytics and offering that to the community managers. So having a dashboard of analytics, you can understand the the top interests of your community in your community members and then you can offer more relevant content, more relevant events. You can really understand their wants and their needs better. And we're looking at flag new members and see how engaged they are to make sure that they integrate properly. We're able to find your power users, really understand who you could potentially give more responsibilities to in the community, make an ambassador, for example. Mm -hmm. Another thing is the, the moderation. I think a lot of people are overwhelmed with the amount of moderation that they have to do. And it's not like people are trying to like post pornographic images or something. Like it's more like people not following the, the rules and the guidelines that are set. And each community has very different guidelines about you know how they want people to interact. And we're trying to find a way to make that simpler for the community managers. We already have AI tools built in so that we can You can't even upload a pornographic image because we catch it. And we're using the same thing for phrases that are discriminatory, for example. The management around shaping your community and the guidelines and the rules, we're really digging deep into how we can approach this in a way where Community managers aren't sitting there endlessly, like, rejecting things and writing reasons why you can't post this and that. I think that's a big part of being able to be efficient, but be respectful, be able to shape your community the way you want. And another thing I've heard a lot about is uh, customization. If you can create a, a platform that's, like, highly customizable so that you don't have to really keep building all these new things for new types of communities, but you can make it customizable so that the community managers can choose how they want their community to operate. I can give you an example around privacy or around monetization, right? The way we have our platform is you have this like main space where everyone can interact and then you have subgroups. And so some community managers, for example, want to monetize and say, okay, this is like main space is free this is how we like attract our users and how we give them value but then these subgroups like a networking group this could be a premium group and you pay a membership fee and then you get access to these certain premium groups and they want to decide which ones are premium and which ones are free and can people post on the main feed or can only the community managers post on the main feed so that they don't have as much moderation to so all of these things where you really can decide how how it feels and how the community, what direction it's going in and how you're going to monetize. And I think that's really important. And that's the thing we've heard the most is that things aren't customizable enough. And the dashboard and the management and the analytics side of everything is really lacking in a lot of these tools. I like what you're talking
0: about in terms of the technology, but I want to drill into your own personal experience and from social anthropology background. What are the things you need to embed in the tool to really help create engagement between
1: members? I mean, I think one thing that we've been exploring a lot is the division between the community managers organizing events and things like that and giving giving agency to the members, allowing them to create events or spontaneous meetups. So we have a tool or like a feature where you can actually just create this spontaneous, who wants to like take a road trip tomorrow or whatever, and people can hop on. And I think having a balance between like the top down things coming from the community managers and the community members being able to create experiences inside, start conversations. I think it's important to have a balance. And we're actually exploring a monetization model where community members could pay a very fractional amount of money to get access to new features for the community as a whole. Because mm. I think it's a really interesting way to to kind of co-create your community. We don't want to have ads on the platform. We, we don't want that experience. And I don't think, I think people don't want that experience anymore. Authenticity is really important Not feeling like your data is being mined. We don't want to mine people's data. Privacy is really important for us. And I think that alone distinguishes us from something like Facebook. Interesting.
0: So you touched a little bit about monetization. What have you seen as successful monetization models for a community-based product?
1: We're seeing quite a few communities that are already collecting membership fees, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty traditional way to do it. If you're providing like a very curated experience, I think a lot of members understand the work that goes into it and are willing to pay to to be a part of that community. Mm -hmm. What we have heard is that many of those community managers are struggling to keep track. Who's paid? How are they paying? What access do they get when they pay? And so that's another problem we're trying to solve. But then through our interviews, we just kept hearing how many people wanted to turn this into a business. They had a lot of members. They wanted to monetize. On the other side, we're competing with Facebook, Slack, like all of these platforms that offer a free version or a free tool. Starting off, we couldn't just charge for something where people could just make a Facebook group. So we decided, why don't we make money when they make money? So when they charge membership fees, we take a commission for helping them keep track of them, process them. When they charge event fees for hosting a a paid event, ticketed event on our platform, we take a commission. And again, it's this sense of we're in this together. When I have sales calls, I tell people, look, yes, we're young as a company and we have a long way to go. But we're looking for partners. We're looking for co-creators. There is clearly things that you haven't found in the tools that you're using. And we can build those and we can build them fast. We've gotten some really big community managers who are just super excited about being part of that journey with us. I would say also what I think some people are interested in is like they haven't really seen a, a social platform built by a woman. And they see that there's a different priority there. There's a priority of creating a safe space, of creating more substance, more fulfillment in the interactions with people. Empathy is a big factor in that. And I think that excites some people. So we are seeing a lot of female community managers and male, but like a lot of female community managers for Okay. And and was that enough
0: when you went to do your first round of um, angel funding? Can you talk to me a little bit about the angel funding process and how you went about it and maybe advice for other... Entrepreneurs that are starting to look for angel funding?
1: Sure. That was a very, very tough process and a very steep learning curve. I remember I was in an accelerator. I entered it by myself, and there were five other companies with me. And I was going up to the the founders, and I'm like, So, what exactly do you say when you ask for money? Like, how do you phrase it? Because I can't get that sentence to come out of my mouth. Like, I just feel so uncomfortable with this. And it took me a really, and by the end of the accelerator, everyone had like asked all these people for money. And I was like, but they're people. It's one thing to ask a VC because that's their job. But these are like angels and this is their money and they're taking the risk. And I was really hesitant at first to just ask these everyday people for money. And I had to kind of reframe it and say, okay, actually I'm selling them an opportunity. And... I really had to work on that in my head. When I worked for Apple, I worked in sales, and I actually discovered that I was better at sales than I thought, and I realized it's because, A, I'm a storyteller, and I have a background in storytelling, and B, I have a lot of background in, in psychology as well, and I, I realized that it's about, again, human connection. It always goes back to that. So. Once I realized that it was about connecting with these people, because they're people and they care about things, they have to care about what you're solving. Once I kind of realized that, especially with angels, it's about finding the people that you can connect with. And, and it's about knowing that you don't want people that you can't connect with as part of your company. It's a very long road ahead. And once I realized that at the beginning, you're like so desperate. You're like, ooh, investors, and you put them on this pedestal. And then when you start to have enough confidence and realize that you have something valuable, you start to shift that and realize, okay, now I have to be selective and I have to want you too. And we have to have good chemistry. And that's really important for me. And once I got that, lesson. And I'm not sure how I got the lesson. I think it was a lot of trial and error and listening to podcasts and reading medium articles and whatever. But once that shifted for me and I became more confident about what I had to offer, I think that made a big difference. And I also think that I I stopped really caring. I stopped just wanting to build relationships and find people that I could connect with. And I think that's what happened with our angels. I mean, I've had our first angel say, like, I hope you know that You're trying to build something that's very, very risky and very difficult. But if anyone's going to build it, it's going to be you because you have this really unique background. Actually, my angel investors make me feel like they're, I don't know, I like them all as people. I email them to just ask how they're doing, how their family's doing. I think that's important. I think having real human relationships human connections with people that are joining your team is the way to actually get investment and not like a, a very sterile pitch to convince someone to buy into your idea because you're so early like your idea isn't much it's you that that they really care about
0: Yep. Yep. No, I think that's a, that's an important thing to keep in mind in terms of connecting with people and people who really buy into your vision in that early stage when there's so much uncertainty and risk. And actually that brings me to another point in terms of what young founders and first-time founders feel, which is a lot of doubt. There's a lot of stress and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of doubt on whether this is going to work out and how you're going to actually build this thing into something that people are going to pay for. So I'm I'm curious, what have you found helpful in keeping yourself motivated to keep going on when there's all these challenges and obstacles, and I'm sure a lot of really down days that come? Like, how do you keep yourself motivated to keep going on?
1: There were a lot more difficult days at the beginning, because when I was alone and when I was just failing and learning from it, I think I started to kind of shift my perception to see that, like, every time I failed at something, it was a chance to learn something new and become stronger and better at tackling. You get into this rhythm where you start to just realize that it's the bigger picture. All those little things, they're really insignificant. They're just learnings. I really feel that it's important to just jump in and do things and not be afraid to fail because... You really, really learn so much and you get better at not failing as much. And also, I would say my team really motivates me a lot. And I think it does for them too, because we've like bonded despite the fact that we're now a fully remote team. But I think they bring a lot of motivation because they're all super excited about what we're building and we're all in it together.
0: Nice. We're almost at the end of the the podcast and I wanted to ask you one other question before we stop. And that's around, what do you do outside of work? Like how do you balance this really hectic, crazy startup life that's kind of on your mind all the time? What's your way of de-stressing? Sure.
1: If I had a startup in the US, I would probably be on a thousand anti anxiety medications like i remember living in you are living in the us and just non stop working and that the culture around you is that and so part of living in sweden the culture around me was no emails on the weekends you stop work at four or five and then you spend time with your like family or you spend time with like your friends and you don't talk about work after work and all of these things that were kind of built into the into that lifestyle and I realized that I needed that, and I was really thankful that the outside culture imposed that on me, because I probably wouldn't have done it myself coming from New York. And so I think it's important to consider where you are and if that's the right culture for you, and if you can self-regulate how much you're working and how stressed you are, or if you need that outside influence, and I need that, and I know that. I actually recently moved to Portugal because I wanted to find even more balance And I really spend a lot of time regulating my screen time because I think that that is important. Um, I mean, my favorite time when I lived in Sweden was on my bicycle when I was biking between places because I had no screen in front of me. My mind could risk it with itself and all of these great ideas and things got worked out while I was on my bicycle. And I realized that's in a sense a kind of meditation. So I've been meditating for quite a while now. I'm getting better at it. It's not easy. But I think really like getting to know your mind on a new level. Your mind is, it's a muscle and you need to exercise it as much as you exercise your body. And once you realize that and you learn to be able to control it and to kind of de-stress because you're in control of your mind, all of that has been really importance. I'm still very early on in that journey, but I think I think when you're a founder and there's this insane this insanely stressful situation, you really need to spend some time on self-development and getting to know yourself and what you need and especially when you have a team. I had one day, I think, where something happened and I was in such a bad mood and my team was like, and they weren't mad at me. They wrote to me and they're like, we've never seen you like this. Are you okay And that's the kind of culture we've built. But I don't want to put my stuff on other people. So I really need to spend that time. And I think that's important. And I think most of the founders I know that are quite successful when you talk about it with them. They're really like reading books and listening to podcasts. For me, it was learning to prioritize was one really important thing. Learning to prioritize in my life and my relationships, and everything, and just reflecting a lot and being self-aware. I think these are important. Exercising, making your bed, that helps me a lot. I actually was reading a Mark Manson book and he said something that really resonated. He said that true liberation really comes from creating rules and creating restrictions Because if you create these rules and restrictions for yourself, you don't have to think about those things anymore. You can actually relax because you set up a routine that you know works for you and then your minds can actually be liberated to focus on more creative things.
0: I think those are very wise words, Melanie. And I think on that note, we will... End this podcast. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining me. I found it really interesting, and I wish you all the best. And I think what you're doing is really needed, and how you're going about doing it is very inspiring. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so
1: much.